the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Anesthesia live broadcast this afternoon. Um, I'm going to be chairing the event. My name is Cara Hughes and I am the current uh, trainee fellow at the journal. And I'm very excited to say today that we are going to be discussing the paper published in January um, entitled Recruitment to Higher Specialty Training in Anesthesia in the UK during the COVID-19 pandemic, a national survey. We are fortunate to have four of the authors with us today. Uh, we have Dr. Jeeves Subramaniam, who is an SAS doctor at Newham University Hospital. Dr. Chris Holt, who is an SD3 anaesthetic trainee in South East London. Dr. Neela Durrant, who's an SD3 anaesthetic trainee in Kent, Surrey and Sussex. And Dr. Stuart Edward Edwardson, who is an SD5 anaesthetic and ICM trainee in the South East of Scotland and also vice chair of the Association of Anaesthetist Trainee Committee. Um, so we will get started. So my first question um, to Jeeves is, can you just uh, tell us a bit of background um, to the survey? So why you felt it was important to perform? I think Nula is probably the best person to answer for this one. Okay, sorry, Nula. Yeah. Oh, I think maybe Nula's, Nula's possibly <laughs> disappeared. Yeah. I, um, well, I'll I'll take I'll take it from here then unless she manages to reconnect hopefully, um, so I think um, really it was from a personal perspective that um, we got together as a group of trainees who'd not had a successful uh, application in that round of ST three recruitment and had experienced um, some of the issues that were surrounding it and then following that initial unsuccess. Um, we weren't really sure what, what we were going to do for the next 12 months. Um, and then 24 months when the realization came that there were changes to recruitment and as a result of changes to the curriculum, anecdotally speaking, sort of amongst ourselves within the department and to other trainees across the country, we knew that this was a bigger problem than just ourselves. Um, so we got together, um, and thought, well, we need to try and capture the issues that have come up with this and we need to try and do it as quickly as possible to try and, you know, implement some changes and to try and actually improve the situation for ourselves, but also for trainees in the future and future rounds of recruitment. So hopefully it doesn't happen again. Okay. And can you, um, just in case there's some people who aren't aware of the particular reasons for why there's been such a problem with higher specialty recruitment in the last couple of years it's been a kind of combination of a few things yes I think, um it's sort of a perfect storm of um changes to the curriculum that were implemented by the the college sort of mandated by the gmc um the changes to the recruitment that that uh meant that there wasn't going to be a full round of recruitment in august 2022, so this year, uh, there were changes to the exam requirements for uh, specialty training applications. So you only needed the written exam. So that meant it opened up to a, a larger cohort of applicants. People weren't going abroad because of COVID or, or concerns about being able to get jobs abroad. And so it meant that the numbers of applicants far exceeded um, previous years, but the number of uh, trainee numbers that were available at basically been static for the last five or six years, um, which meant uh, that 
yeah, the, the competition for places was that much higher. Okay, yeah. It's... There are a couple of other things as well. Yeah. Um, core training recruitment numbers have outstripped that of registrar numbers for a number of years now. So there has been a slow bottleneck up to this point. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, um, last year, there were other issues of recruitment as well with unverified scoring, a number of trainees that missed out and therefore got pushed forward uh, to the current round. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll come back to some of those issues a bit later on. Um, but first I wanted to ask a bit about your methodology. So surveys are notoriously very, very difficult to perform well, um, but you managed to very quickly perform a survey which presented very or very successful kind of quantitative and qualitative data. And you also managed to get a, um, a response rate of about 50%, which is very good. Uh, so can you tell us a bit more about your methodology and how you ensured this was a robust survey? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one as well. But um, I think, first and foremost, the methodology we used, so we, we looked at some of the themes that we used in the foundation programme, uh, career destination surveys, just as a sort of starting point. And then within our group, used uh, a sort of Delphi, modified Delphi method to sort of hone those questions down and, and sort of make them as relevant as possible to um, our cohort of trainees. We originally, what we were intending to look at was uh, trainees' experience of the recruitment process. Um, but we, as you mentioned, the sort of um, qualitative data that we got, we left an open-ended free text uh, comment at the end of the survey in order to capture the feeling that we could get from each other and that we were getting from colleagues and friends across the country and, and give people the opportunity to express um, in a more open-ended way what they felt about training and recruitment as a, as a whole. Um, I think the response rate was reflective of the strength of feeling uh, amongst trainees at that time. And I think one of the key things um, was that this was, you know, this was a, a trainee survey by trainees for trainees. And we were a small, quite um, flexible group of people that could get a pilot study out, modify and hone down those questions. And then, you know, through the association of uh, an we managed to then get a really good um, distribution of the survey nationally to try and capture as representative a um, body of um, applicants as possible, which we, which, you know, it was amazing that we managed to do that actually. And we were so pleased that we were able to actually capture the feeling in that, in that moment. So yeah, I think it was, you know, a small group of us that were able to be so flexible and get it out there very quickly because we weren't really, you know, we were only answering to ourselves really. Yeah. How long did it, sorry, Neil. So, and just kind of what Chris said about it really capturing, um, what everyone was feeling. I think people were really keen to respond as well because it gave them a platform mm-hmm. to express things. There was so much um, kind of talk among departments and between trainees about what was going on. And I think people really um, appreciated the opportunity to kind of voice those kind of opinions and concerns in this formal manner, uh, particularly so these can be put forward to kind of relevant stakeholders, such as the Royal College and the association um, to look at how we can solve these problems. Yeah, I guess that's quite a good point that perhaps trainees didn't feel they had, like you say, a formal way to communicate 
these kind of issues so that you definitely provided that for trainees definitely um i was just going to ask quickly how, how long sorry could i just mean on that point as well yeah, yeah. so i think a representation is so important here isn't it i think and just to having my sort of an association lisa streamy committee hat on um I think that clearly we had published some work before, which was voicing some concerns, which was direct from the Association of Leases, because the trainee committee had been approached by so many people voicing significant concerns and seeing really the train coming down the tracks from many months away, knowing that this problem was going to happen, but didn't really feel that anybody was registering it from them. And all the sort of, I don't know, check lights that should be in place about trainee representation uh, it felt like they weren't working at all. And so we were having to do something that was maybe a bit more impactful to get people to listen. And certainly uh, in terms of uh, meaningful uh, um, responses, it was becoming quite difficult. And so actually this group of motivated trainees in, in conjunction with the association in terms of how rapidly we could sort of approve this and put this together actually finally managed to get some really good representation um, in terms of uh, uh, getting some good data. Yes, yeah. Uh, so moving on to some of the findings. Um, so there's quite a few kind of standout uh, figures that you've got. Um, but one of them I, I noticed was that nearly half of respondents um, kind of lacked confidence that if they, when they didn't get an ST free job, that next jobs they would get would give them uh, the kind of, allow them to get the skills and training needed in order for them to apply for um, higher specialty training posts. Um, the creation of CT-free jobs, uh, or top-up years, um, is guided by the college, but otherwise is fairly kind of deanery specific in how that's actually delivered. Um, I wanted to ask how do you think we, or training committees can guarantee that these CT-free years um, will improve the confidence of trainees and kind of related to that for anaesthetic doctors who don't re-enter training kind of the SAS route or the CESA route is notoriously very very difficult and quite complicated um, should or how could this be improved um, to provide better kind of fulfillment for these doctors so there's two questions there fair enough um, so I think First of all, I'd highlight sort of exactly who we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So for those who were in core training, um, there's a group of anaesthetists that have entered CT1, um, done the novice period, and then been thrown into the pandemic, um, have gone through the pandemic, either propping up IC or being completely redeployed. Um, and then those that are proceeding towards CT2, then back into ICUs again for the second wave, um, a number of them well, all of them that have applied for uh, ST3 at that point have then passed the primary written. A number of them will have passed the Viva as well. And then been told at that point that they don't have a job, that they will have to meet the requirements of training outside of a training program and have been given written guidance. So the theme reading through sort of the white space feedback is really strongly disillusioned. Um, there's lots of mentions of communication. I know lots of trainees have been given conflicting advice about whether CT3 would happen initially when they first entered the novice period, yeah. um, whether they would remain in training or not. And this communication has conflicted throughout until written guidance has come out. And then there seems to have been a retrospective 
sort of um, support put in for issues that were raised locally, which were raised in training forums, which the association has then raised as well. And there's been continued issues with CT3 afterwards. So following this publication, I've spoken to a number of trainees in different regions across the country that have expressed um, difficulties with their CT3. The one, 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 one thing that's apparent is that although the college sets out the framework for CT3, it's delivered by individual local hospitals and by schools of anesthesia. And for those, you know, this, this is a group of anesthetists that are used to studying a curriculum, that are used to following guidelines, that will very carefully assess what they need to get done and set out to do it. And subsequently, if they have problems either locally or with their sign-offs within their school, there is very little recourse for these for these anaesthetists. They have they can ask the college for support tickets. They can um, escalate through their own school, but ultimately, if there's a disagreement about sign off or about provisions for modules, about who gets precedence, whether they get the same opportunities, um, they they have nowhere to go. And the college um, seems to take the stance that they will not directly intervene. Um, this is my personal opinion, um, but I would, I would hold that um, the college should be ready to give more direct intervention, to actually intercede on the behalf of these trainees that have been left behind. Um, some key stats I'd, go, I'd talk about, that 17.4% of this cohort were strongly considering working abroad. And we all know fantastic anaesthetists that have gone and never return. So you know, a given proportion of those trainees will never return. 9.4% are considering leaving medicine altogether. 9% thinking of leaving anesthetics as a specialty. And very few are considering CSER, but as a group, 75% of those trainees were not confident in the CSER pathway. Trust is evidently very, very low. And while the college might have set out some documents saying that CSER could be quicker for these trainees, that they're, they're, they're planning a pathway, trust is really, really low. And I'm included in, in that cohort of trainees that have come through this I even sat at the finals only to have my CRQ sit cancelled. So, you know, this is a this is a cohort that's been hit, been hit over and over again. And unfortunately, I don't think reading through this white space and talking to trainees now that there's much goodwill left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would suggest that the college needs to do more Take, take more of an active role, essentially, in supporting these trainees. Documents are, are probably not enough. I think um, also we are aware that um, we did this survey um, looking at recruitment, and there is currently another survey which is ongoing and we're waiting for the results, looking at how the CT3s feel about those posts. Um, and I think that's great that we are asking trainees how they're feeling or all these cohorts um, and seeing, getting feedback. Um, so... It'd be really interesting to see what those results are and also how how any issues raised are kind of dealt with as well. So hopefully there is some kind of more coming on the CT3s to improve to improve the situation. But as Steve says, it, it sounds like it's been quite tough for mm-hmm. everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, I can completely agree with what Jeeves says. I think we can all agree as trainees, it's really hard. Your natural rhythm of life is a tough one in terms of the uncertainty with which you have to jump through. And then as a surprise, at the very beginning of your specialty training or your training in a specialty, for somebody to release you from that and say, the next year's up to you. 
and you have to pick up all the points and we're not responsible for making sure that um that 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 happens it's really hard especially when you're entrusting that to health trusts who for better or worse are pressed themselves i mean we all know that nobody has nobody's got money everybody's over capacity you're the, the trust that you work in it's understandable that a lot of their decisions are not necessarily going to be to your education or clinical experience benefit they're going to put the bodies where they need to be put and usually that's in an intensive care unit and unfortunately what that means is uh, again as Steve was saying is that there's there's an erosion of trust that happens and once that starts to happen between a training cohort and either their college or health education england or um, their recruitment body that's just a spiral that means that nobody can trust anything in the future in terms of their recruitment, what job will be available, their training opportunities. And that just adds to the already, already inherent uncertainty of what it is to be a trainee from day to day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that brings me quite nicely to my next kind of question, which was another kind of standout um, percentage for me, was that 78% of your respondents had experienced disruption to their wider life plans. Now, obviously, this is a very specific cohort, and obviously everyone in the world has had quite a major disruption. Um, but I wonder, did you think that this was reflective, actually, maybe of anaesthetic training as a whole, in terms of, you know, we we are adults, we have our own lives. Is that reflected well in the, in the kind of curriculum as it stands? So I think that's a really good question, and I think that is a question that applies not necessarily just to this cohort this time it applies to what it is to be a trainee and to trust the people that are entrusted with the safety of what your job and your training is the short answer is is no i don't think this is just pandemic related so this is just now related um, we can clearly see that there were two-thirds of people who are already trained in this people who can function on their own as an anaesthetist and our entrusted colleagues of all of ours um, that we work with day in, day out, who will, you know, do a GA cat one section, manage a, um, a major obstetric hemorrhage, do an intubation in recess. Two thirds of those people did not get to continue on in their specialty training. So we have people that we've already invested in, in terms of money, recruitment, teaching, giving them educational supervisors, them doing half of the exams at least. And then they've not been given the opportunity to continue on in their specialty training, which is just heartbreaking, both from a personal perspective, from knowing people myself, and uh, from all of the answers and these questions that we've all uh, gone through, either in this paper or other pieces of work. We all know that our, our life um, movements are dictated by the sort of infrastructures of our training, for good or for bad, right? So... Uh, people make their major life decisions on when they're getting married, when they're buying that house, when they're going to get that puppy, um, or uh, I don't know, even if they're going to go on that second date or not, because uh, of because they either do or don't know whether they're going to be sticking around in the same geographical area or not. If you then say to people, I don't have anywhere near enough jobs for you, despite how hard you have worked and the fact that you have ticked all the boxes and jumped through all the hoops, and also from a lot of the white space feedback we got, which is, again, sort of an erosion of trust in the fairness of the application process itself. People did not trust it after numbers of years of going through it and saying, hang on, I don't understand this. I've been unfairly marked here. You know, my self-scores were unverified. Anybody could have said anything. Um, 
then what happens is that people inherently just simply don't trust the process for the next year and the year after and the year after. And so naturally you get figures like nine or 10% of people just want to leave anesthetics altogether because they say, well, I, I can't go, I can't go around in these circles all the time. And Unfortunately, I think this sort of is like the beginning of a thread, which is, as we know, as trainees, so much of the infrastructure of our lives is dictated by other people. And it can be really hard to get people to see that and actually to um, value and sometimes should prioritise um, what is happening to you, because it does feel a lot like things are happening to you rather than for you. Um, and I think uh, that is some of the difficulty that led to this paper needing to like provide a platform for people to speak their voice. I would yeah, I, really like to read a couple of quotes if I could um, from yes. the white space. I think it answers this a bit. Um, I've got two quotes that stand out to me. After diligently propping up surge ICUs and caring for critically ill COVID patients, the NHS has treated a need system training, a single use disposable license burning them out on surge rosters when needed, and then casually discarding them, leaving them without jobs or careers when not. Um, along with that, I think it's extraordinary that under the current system, various parties involved in training will, will with one hand promote wellbeing initiatives and with the other be complicit in trainees abandoning their friends, family and social support structures when national recruitment schemes require them to move hundreds of miles for jobs to continue training. It is not complicated. Recognizing the importance of being able to put down roots, build healthy relationships and friendships outside work, and develop a healthy work-life balance by having more control over where you live is key to promoting happiness. Mindfulness initiatives, while still valuable, are clearly not going to make up for abandoning these things to take a training post in a location where you have no links to and are moving solely due to work. And I think, I think like Jill said, like the comments were and also what Stuart said, the comments of what people have said, um, you know, with regards to well-being, quite um, concerning. Um, a lot of our training, I mean, this is higher training. And if you look at the, the response of our trainees and their ages, a lot of people, I think majority are over 30. And I think we always knew anaesthetic training was, was difficult. We knew we had quite a tr tricky job and there were things to do with life work balance. But I think it, a lot of people feel that the balance has changed now and there's certain things that they signed up for that not, aren't being done. And one of those was job protection and job security. Um, there's a lot of issues that haven't been explored yet that people have um, expressed kind of in the white space answers. So pay, can I get time off? Can I get maternity leave? Things like that that are really important issues that are always going to add to well-being. Um, so I think it's really important going forward if these people are doing these TT3 jobs, we need to look at those things and make sure that those things are addressed. Um, I would add to that as well in terms of work. Um, there are There is clearly a rising proportion of trainees that have opted for less than full-time for their own work-life balance. I am actually not aware of any CT3s that have successfully managed to get part-time work despite guidance from the college. Um, there may be some out there, but they are certainly in a much smaller proportion to those actually in training, which therefore reflects the lack of support for part-time work in CT3. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really, really concerning because those are people that have then had to provide reasons for less than full-time that have been accepted that, and then therefore have had, now had to return to full-time work with no real recourse. Uh, I think, you know, what becomes very apparent when you go through all of these comments is 
the disillusionment with the current setup for training and, and recruitment. But time and time again, you know, the college uh, have, you know, they can only advocate for more training pace. They can only sort of lobby for more training pace. And, you know, to some degree, it's it's slightly out of their, their hands, although, you know, we'd always say they could try and do more. What is un, in their control is, uh, and again, was a theme in the in the comments, was the communication regarding a lot of this, mm-hmm. a lot of these issues that ultimately a lot of what has, has come about was very predictable um, and was very... Um, well, it was raised uh, time and time again in previous surveys um, and, uh, you know, even on webinars and, and discussions around curriculum changes about the issue for, you know, everyone knows there's a, there's a deficit of uh, training numbers for applicants. It was just particularly um, uh, accentuated this, this time around. Um, but the, the sort of head in the sand approach to the issues that were foreseen is I think what is incredibly frustrating from everyone's point of view and, and is something which is very much within the control of, of the college to try and, you know, remedy those situations, but also to communicate effectively what the solution is to those problems. And unfortunately, we're still, you know, the guidance for the CT3 post came out incredibly late, even though, you know, it was a delay in the change to the curriculum actually from when it was meant to be implemented originally. So this should have been issued far in advance of the actual um, process being implemented. And um, there is still ongoing communication issues and um, confusion about, as Jesus was saying, what exactly needs to be evidenced, who exactly can sign these placements off. There's a confusion around the new curriculum where it's meant to be competency-based rather than time-based, but there's a very, and as Jeeves sort of alludes, Jeeves alludes to in terms of, sign-offs if a lot of these trust grade posts are signed off for their ct3 top-up posts because they're competent and deemed to have the evidence to um to be signed off i think there's a anecdotally a fear a trust level that a lot of these trainees will then leave those posts um because they've achieved what they need to achieve they've got their sign off they can apply for st4 and go and you know pursue other academic opportunities or take some time out or you know, go to part-time work, which might not be available to them within their own trust. So the, you know, as predicted by ourselves and and many other groups, the 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 interests of the trusts are very different to the interests of the college, which uh, on a whole are different to the, tr- the to the trainees that are actually working uh, in those posts. Um, so yeah, I think the frustration about how predictable this was and yet and it seems to have come as a shock to those that are in charge is, is frustrating. I think I you add, hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, sorry, Jeeves. And I would, I, would bring, I would circle that back to the relationship between trainees and the college. So at the moment, the go-to solution to issues remains a support ticket, an email to the training department, maybe a phone conversation. But again, it always circles back to speak to your college tutor, speak to your educational supervisor, they can facilitate your learning. But where there, where there arises a true dispute, where the interests of the trainee and those of the hospital or the trust don't align, I would maintain that actually, I think, given that it's the college's curriculum and the college's guidance, 
I would, I would really hope that the college step up and intervene directly and start communicating directly with the trainees and with the trainers, helping to resolve this as a mediator, um, instead of just asking trainees to take on all the burden of negotiation around sign-offs and competencies. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult, isn't it? It's horrible. Um, I'm trying to think. So we've already mentioned that what the college is doing or what the college can be doing. Obviously, we don't have a representative from the college here today to kind of uh, provide a bit of a counter argument. Um, they have put in place this Fit for the Future campaign um, and are lobbying for more anaesthetic trainee places. Uh, do you think uh, there is anything further they could do or do you, some of the communication issues that you've spoken about, how would you, or how, how would you recommend they could move forward? I think the Fit for the Future campaign is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's a good thing. And lobbying for places is, um, is a good start. And while it's encouraging this is happening, I think it would be wildly optimistic to imagine that the current shortfall between the number of trainees that need a job or would like a job and the number of places become equal. It's, you know, I think it's highly, highly likely that there will be a number of trainees that have been out of training for two years um, and still without a job after the next round of recruitment. So in my mind, it seems imperative that the college starts thinking about and setting out what to do in that scenario, because I think it's highly likely that you will lose those people forever if you don't do something. Whether that might be something along the lines of an ST4 equivalency or good, robust guidelines about how those people can start to look at alternatives like a CESA pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, having a look at what the GMC say now about CESA and the new curriculum, those it appears to me that those who have done three years in a GMC approved program might be able to apply for CCT. Um, even with the CESA paperwork or something similar. But the circumstances around that remain quite murky. We've not heard anything directly about from the college about either confirming that or how that might be done. Something that might help would be example portfolios or actually showing trainees, you know, actually giving examples of how this could be done. Um, and then to reiterate, actual support from the college, perhaps even intercession or representative to actually work with and discuss these things with so that trainees actually have some trust that there's someone looking out for them and supporting them along the way. It would be a massive kick in the teeth to have these trainees or these these anaesthetists who have now, by that point, been practicing anaesthesia for four, maybe five years, then go on to collect lots of paperwork, only at the last hurdle to be told, oh, sorry, you didn't do it this way, you didn't tick this box, you missed this thing from years ago and to have to go back um, and stall further. It's going to be really, really important to have sort of continuous, robust communication and support for those for those people. Um, I would say that communication is something the college has already acknowledged has been lacking in the past. It's really, I think it's encouraging to see people like the CEO um, and other seniors in the college acknowledging it, talking about it. But really, the proof is in action now. Uh, we need to see. Uh, we need to see it happen from the college. 
if I could just pick up on a lot of your ideas there, Jeeves. So I would agree with all of that. I think one thing that all of this process has highlighted to us is that I think normally when training is sort of trucking along fine and everything's doing what it should, we all assume similar to sort of when you have your critical incident uh, algorithms that they're there, they're in their box and we can sort of pull emergency cord when we need and it'll all work. We sort of needed to pull the emergency cord now and I feel like um, uh, we've found that all of those processes which should be um, dynamic and adjustable and should be agile to um, how trainees are feeling or what trainees need or trainees numbers or what your health service needs simply has not been there at all. And the things that we um, inherently trust for the people that um, are charged with looking after our training um, has found to be somewhat lacking. One detail I would add to that is that it's been a learning experience for me and I think many people now that we've realized, um, you know, there aren't enough training places or there are problems with, uh, you know, examination or the curriculum as to who's actually in charge of what. So who holds the keys for a number of training places? So, for example, as we've quite rightly said, it is not within the gift of the college to give training places, but absolutely they are a key stakeholder and people who can lobby HEE um, in order to do so. They are answerable to the government. And actually getting the um, granularity of that detail, I think, has been really useful in this process because it empowers us as trainees to know exactly who it is we need to speak to um, or who it is that's, um, I suppose, in charge of that. Jeeves is quite right that the college have responded to a number of these concerns already in terms of communication, in terms of the CTT top-up survey actually wanting to look at um, what's happening with the people that they've asked to take on these trust grade jobs with just guidance alone and how to get their competencies a frustration of mine was always going to be that this is sort of bolting the stable door like after the horse is gone isn't it so uh, as we said there was a predictability in this happening everybody had a very 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 shaky period for a while where we didn't know what was going on and we weren't really getting particularly good communication and also the communication we were getting didn't really make us feel like we were being heard or valued um, and that unfortunately the sort of bruise of that has lasted uh, to the point that as Jeeves says I think um, action is the sort of main meaningful thing that can be done now. I think also one point we've not actually mentioned yet is the fact that we have a massive shortage of anaesthetic consultants already. We have a huge shortage of anaesthetic consultants already. We need to expand services and surgery, and we've got this huge waiting list. And it just, it doesn't seem to make sense, I don't think, for anyone, that we just, we're not massively increasing our training numbers. Um, and, I mean, hopefully this does mean that actually we will increase our training numbers because the case for them is just going to become more and more apparent. But at the moment, it, it it just doesn't seem to make any sense, I think. And I think maybe that's adding to everyone just not really understanding what's going on and being quite confused. Yeah, definitely. I imagine there's even higher up political powers that are behind that overall uh, kind of decision. Um, but yeah, definitely in, in light of the pandemic and the massive, massive backlog, then yeah, it makes even less sense to have this, um, this problem. Um, I think we're going to have to move on to the final question. Um, we've already made clear, I think you guys have made clear that this problem is unfortunately not just a one-off and is probably going to have repercussions for the next few years. 
Um, are you planning on repeating this survey? Um, I think it would be quite interesting to see if, um, as you said, some of the college measures have actually had any kind of impact. Um, what are your plans for the future? Um, so I think, the, as we said, the point of this survey actually was um, initially just to grasp what trainees thought about these specific particular set of issues. Um, and one of the reasons was to put all these feelings forward to stakeholders to see if we could make a difference. And um, I mean, some things have changed. You know, the, the Royal College is um, asking for more training numbers. There does seem to have been more trainee post created in February. So we're hoping that, you know, some of these things have made an impact. Um, and I'm not sure we would repeat the survey in exactly the same way. But I think this is showing that we need to speak to trainees and survey trainees and get their opinions on things, uh, you know, to boost morale, to increase retention in the speciality. Um, but also, I think even if we don't do the same survey, we do need to follow up on these trainees. Yeah. Um, we've obviously seen a massive um, group who have been excluded from training, who have got really low morale, really low well-being and are going to face difficulties. And these people are our colleagues. They're working in our departments. They're members of our associations. They're members of the Royal College and they need to be looked after. As Chris said earlier, we can see that this was a bottleneck and this was a situation that was always going to happen. And I think we can all see that it might happen again. We've got the next, we've got a year of recruitment suspended and then we've got a new lot of CC3s as well as all these people going, but trying to get back into training. So I think we need to keep an eye on these trainees and facilitate looking after them really and getting them back into training. I think um, like Nula was saying, you know, it's, it's entirely predictable again that uh, August uh, next year, there'll be a, a massive oversubscription for um, training numbers, even if there is some success in increasing the, the number available. Um, I think one of the key things that uh, it would be interesting to take from this survey, which doesn't seem to happen um, as someone that um, had already taken some time out of training uh, prior to, to all of this, th there's no follow-up from the college. So people lose their training numbers for whatever reason, relinquish them because they're changing specialties, relinquish them because they've not got exams, uh, they want to take some time out or, or for whatever reason. Um, I don't think the college really has any firm grasp or idea of the number of trainees that are sort of in limbo between core and specialty training. Um, who's supporting them, what they're doing, Do they are they trying to come back into training, are they Caesaring? In, not all these doctors go on um, to work as SAS doctors, which a proportion will, and that's um, you know incredibly important as well. But I think you know, to not understand where the trainees that don't continue training are or, or what they're doing is, uh, I don't know, I was always very surprised and shocked at that. You know, I, I dropped my training number a couple of years ago before I came back into training and never, ever had any follow-up from from the college or anyone and um, to see what I was doing or what I was trying to do. It was all very much self-directed um, and independent in how I then, you know, tried to get back into training. I'd just um, pick up on that from Chris that I, I've seen time and time again feedback from this specific cohort of trainees who have been, they've had to endure a battery of problems, whether they be through recruitment, um, redeployment through a pandemic, issues um, with recruitment, um, issues with exams. And, time, and I, 
I do genuinely really worry about this group of people, uh, whether they are people that I have met or not. And many of them are colleagues I've had. Many of them are people who, um, you know, I've been registrar to on a night shift and have, you know, shown around the labour ward for the first time and you know and there are people who are excellent doctors who have become so completely disillusioned with the process and have along with everybody else and what we've all had to endure for the last couple of years had to endure such a difficulty with their own careers which they have which so much has been asked of them and in terms of our ability to know who these people are and to be able to um protect them and see them either back into training or see them through SAS and Caesar jobs, I think is, is just so, so important because what we lose through all this is that um, they're people. So they are people who have, you know, gone to medical school, done the foundation training, chosen anaesthetics. They chose to come to us and uh, we've partially trained them and then turned them away. And uh, I just... I would like to see a sort of formal way of us being able to do that for them. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. Jeeves, do you have any thoughts on that as a as one of those cohorts? I I chose the specialty because of how varied and interesting it was, of how inspirational. Mm-hmm the the on-call team were whenever I was struggling when I was in a surgical job or an ICU job or on a medical job and and anesthetists were the people you call for help and they arrived they were calm they fixed the problem in front of them they whisked the patient away the patient would come back in three or four days better you have no insight to what happened in between but you're like I want to be that guy but the thing that really tipped me into anesthesia was the reputation it had for looking after its trainees it is unparalleled in that regard you have a group of highly skilled individuals with one-to-one training who put so much into them. And it feels to me very, very sad that that reputation in the matter of months, even a year, is in tatters. Yeah. What a way to, um, what a way to um, reverse like, such an amazing reputation of the training program, of the specialty, um, and ultimately of the college. I think there is this opportunity now to reverse that and to address the problems, to be seen to be addressing the problems and to be seen to be supportive and caring in a way that the college and the training program has held for, frankly, generations. Um, and it's in the hands of trainers, of anesthetists, um, and of the college to, to, to address that. I think on that note, we will end it this afternoon. Um, thank you all so, so much for being here. Um, thank you for forming that really, really important um, survey and effectively giving a voice to, tra- to trainees. Um, yeah, just really heartfelt thank you. That was really, really good. Um, so thanks also uh, to Mike Trouser, who's behind the scenes uh, making this happen today. Um, If you haven't yet read this uh, survey, it is um, available on the journal uh, to read for free. And um, in the future, please keep an eye on the Twitter feed and the website for the next broadcast and all that the journal has to offer. Okay, thank you so much. um, And we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Cara. Thank you.
the Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>